welcome to the Good Chemistry Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Jeffrey West. Jeffrey is a distinguished professor and the former president of the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico. He is a theoretical physicist whose interests are in fundamental questions that cut across physics, biology, and the social sciences. He has done research on things ranging from metabolism and growth, aging and death, sleep, cancer, innovation, cities, companies, and the accelerating pace of life. He's been a speaker featured in all kinds of places. You can find his talks online, on YouTube and elsewhere. And he's the author of the book Scale, which we discussed in this episode. Scale is all about the fundamental scaling laws that underlie how organisms, cities, and companies scale up and down in various ways. How things like metabolism change as animals get bigger, how things like the pace of life and the pace of innovation change in cities as they get bigger, and how various aspects of business change as a company scales up. The conversation covers a lot of ground, but it is fascinating, and Jeffrey talks about some of the underlying principles that actually provide a unified understanding of scale across all these different domains of life. As always, if you like the content of this podcast, please consider liking the podcast, downloading it, subscribing on YouTube, or becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons support the podcast and help keep it ad-free for as long as possible. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey West. Jeffrey West, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Pleasure to be on your uh, show, so to speak, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, um, it's a pleasure. I was really excited that I was able to get a hold of you. You wrote a book called Scale a number of years ago, and I read it, oh, I don't know, perhaps three years ago now, and I don't even remember how I found it. It was serendipitous, I think, and I'm glad I found it because it was just it was so eye-opening and delightful to read. And I want to get into all the stuff in the book. I don't want to give away too much at the beginning, but it was one of those books where it almost, especially in the beginning, there was many seemingly ordinary, and you might even say mundane questions that everyone you know, at least crosses their mind that they don't actually have answers to. Why do we grow? Why do we die? Why do elephants and whales live longer than mice and birds? All of these seemingly ordinary questions that actually have really deep and exciting answers, I think. And so I want to start off by talking about organisms and and metabolism and size and all of the things you get into in the book. And I want to start by asking a question that was related to a story that's in that first part of the book Hmm. to get us talking about metabolism and, and animal size. So the question is, if for some reason you had to give an elephant a dose of the drug LSD, <laughs> how would you give it the proper dose? Yes, a uh, good, good question, of course. And indeed, it is a story in the book, an anecdote in the book, a true story. And uh, maybe I should tell the story first so that people know the context. But um, so uh, this was uh, some work done, I think it was around the year 1960, when LSD was just beginning to sort of come to the consciousness of people in pharmaceuticals and in psychiatry and so on. And um, everybody knew it had this uh, very strong effect. 
um, on um, mostly at that time it was actually on cats, but also even a little bit on human beings. Um, but um, the um, some uh, people at uh, I forget where it was exactly in UCLA. That's right, at UCLA. Uh, were very interested, had gotten interested in LSD as a um, as a therapeutic drug, and uh, for various reasons, they decided that uh, it would be interesting to see um, what effect it would have on a very large animal. And uh, they hooked up with someone um, in the zoo and, uh, in Norman, no, in uh, Oklahoma City. And uh, they got uh, permission to uh, give um, an elephant whose name was Tusco um, a, a, a dose of LSD. And it brings up exactly the question you just asked, how much LSD do you give an elephant? So what was known at that time was, as I say, mostly about cats. And so what they did, which maybe is the most naive thing you would do, is simply take the weight of an elephant divided by the weight of the cat and multiplied by the dosage of a cat. That came out to be several hundred milligrams of LSD um, and uh, they injected into poor old Tusco and within an hour, well, very quickly, he sort of went completely dysfunctional and uh, trumpeting and, and all the rest, and within an hour died. And uh, the conclusion um, of, the, uh, of the experiment, so to speak, was that elephants have an anomalous reaction to LSD. And uh, lest you think this was some hokey piece of work, the person that did the work, uh, the, the original psychiatrist, was a very well-known psychiatrist, uh, and um, it was published in the um, very distinguished uh, scientific journal called Science. So it has great pedigree. Um, and, um, you know, if you think about it a bit, you realize that uh, the, the extraordinary naivete um, which was used in coming to the uh, amount that they injected Tusco but more generally, of course, it does bring up the question of um, how do you scale up mm -hmm. when you know something of one size to another size mm -hmm. and it permeates all of society. I mean, after all, you know, the, the design of airplanes and ships and or even automobiles are often done first, some parts of it are done on scaled models, which you then scale up. And a fundamental question is that of how to scale up. But in particular, one that is uh, even of relevance right now as we speak is um, many of the um, uh, experiments done with drugs, new drugs, of course, are done on mice, sometimes mm -hmm. on rats, but mostly mice. And the question is, how do you scale up? And maybe later we can even talk about this. Um, when people are looking at cancer, almost all the research on cancer is done on mice. Mm -hmm. And the question then is, you know, you've done something on mice, you observe something on mice, how do you scale it up in terms of uh, understanding uh, cancer and therapeutic interventions 
in, in human beings. Mm-hmm. So going back to Tusco and uh, <laughs> injection of LSD, how much LSD should you have given for old Tusco? Um, the first thing you realize is that um, when you give a drug, um, to when we intake a drug, um, that drug, uh, first of all, gets um, many drugs get um, distributed throughout the body if they're not localized, uh, first of all, through our circulatory system. And, and most importantly, though, that when they have to cross surfaces, there's lots of membranes and surfaces, they cross surfaces and um, as distinct from filling a volume. Mm-hmm. And so um, what you should really ask is not how does the weight of an elephant vary or, or what is its relationship to the weight of a cat, but rather sort of what the areas, in particular, even at the surface area of an elephant, mm-hmm. how does that uh, scale relative to that of a cat? And uh, this is a well-known problem that goes back to Galileo. Galileo was the first to realize that there was this fundamental difference between how volume scale versus Mm -hmm. how areas scale. And he realized not only that, he realized the extraordinary implications of it. And one of them, in fact, is this one, because um, just think of of a cube of size one inch, one by Mm -hmm. one by one. And of course the, um, uh, no, no, so yes, one by one by one. The volume of that is one cubic inch. Now double the size. Um, it's two by two by two, that's eight. So it's eight cubic inches. But think of the area, think of one face of it. The face of the one that's one by one is one square inch. But the face of the two by two is just four. So whereas the volume has increased by a factor eight, the area has only increased by a factor of four, half mm-hmm. as much. And in general, it's clear that the volume increases like the cube of a typical length say, the height of, of, of an organism, of an animal, whereas surface areas increase by the square. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, if you have a huge difference in height, that's an enormous number. I mean, if you increase, in other words, so if something is 10 times longer or higher than something else, and you just scale it up, keeping the geometry basically the same, um, then uh, the volume has increased by 10 by 10 by 10, which is a thousand. Mm-hmm. But the area, each area is only increased by 10 by 10, a hundred. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's an enormous difference. And yes. indeed, um, instead of have, using, having to use, if you do that calculation for elephants versus cats, instead of um, a few hundred milligrams, it's more like two or three. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, which is a perfectly reasonable dose. And, uh, and so um, this is a fundamental error that was made by, you know, extremely good researchers who obviously didn't appreciate this phenomenon. And of course, it is, by the way, um, in the pharmaceutical industry, when they develop drugs, what you pay for a drug, a huge amount has gone into the question of how does it scale mm-hmm. up. And the simplest thing is to do what I just said. And, and one of the things I talk about in the book, by the way, was um, at the time when I learned about this story, I still had young babies, actually. 
And, uh, and you know, you have these little baby Tylenol bottles. And I looked at the back of the Tylenol bottle to see how they scaled up hmm. with weight. And the thing that shocked me was that, so they tell you, you know, if, it's, if it weighs um, um, uh, 10 pounds so much, uh, you know, half a tablet, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, and so on. And it just gives you the numbers. And uh, it, it goes all the way up, I think, at that time. Anyway, it started with a baby, a newborn baby, basically, and went all the way up to like a 10- or 11-year-old. And it went up with their corresponding weights. And to my horror, <laughs> it went up linearly, just as those researchers had done with Tusco the elephant. And you can calculate, and you will see that there's, um, there's a huge difference, actually, um, between um, uh, scaling up uh, in this naive way versus scaling up in, in at least you know, some semblance of paying attention to what is actually happening with that drug. Namely, it has to diffuse across surfaces, mm -hmm. and so surface area plays a dominant role. Um, and which would give very different dosages. And um, I asked uh, various pharmaceutical people if people were aware of this, and of course they are, but somehow the company made Tylenol at that time, didn't seem to be or didn't care, but I have noticed <laughs> more recently, in fact, when I wrote the book, I, I, went, to, I went to the CVS and looked at, uh, you know, the Tylenol bottles of baby Tylenol and found that they'd taken this off. This no longer was on there. So, but it's fundamental. And, and that little example of which you've introduced our conversation is actually fundamental across all of science and technology and social life. Hmm. That asking those questions of how do we scale, whether we scale up a drug, whether we scale up any physiological quantity, whether we scale up um, aspects of life in, in a city um, and so on. A, a company, how does a company scale from something small to something big? Uh, as I say, how do you scale up uh, when you design machinery um, and so on and so forth? So it's fundamental. And uh, that's what this book was about. Yeah. And one, you know, one thing that comes through in the book is that you know the naive, the very natural interpretation is is actually the wrong one. When something yeah. gets ten times yeah. larger, you don't just increase everything by ten. Yes. And it was fascinating to see all of the examples therein. One of the things I want to talk about is metabolism. Mm -hmm. And so similar to the example with the elephant, I, I had a guest previously and we were talking about experiments um, to do with the drug psilocybin, which is being used for sure. therapeutic applications right. recently. And it was described to me that, you know, if you give a human being a dose of psilocybin, it's going to have effects that persist for hours on the scale of several hours. If you give a comparable dose scaled, even appropriately scale, scaled to a mouse, it has effects for minutes, tens of minutes. So That's the correct. rate at which these drugs are metabolized is different. So can you describe for listeners, what is metabolism? And how does metabolic rate vary as you scale up from a smaller sure. to a bigger animal? Sure. And indeed, it was uh, the whole one, the question about metabolism and its various implications that sort of got me into all the biological implications of this 
and sort of turned me into a kind of pseudo-biologist as part of my career. <laughs> um, and um, so metabolism, of course, just uh, superficially, is um, uh, the process by which one takes in food, whatever that may be, and turns it into um, something that can be used to um, uh, um, dynamically move things, act on things, and so on. And so for us, what that is, is literally we take in food. We, we eat plants and animals and so forth. And um, uh, then we have this extraordinary process that takes place within ourselves that turns that into uh, metabolic energy in the form of a um, chemical, a highly complex um, biochemical process producing a chemical that's called ATP, which is basically your currency of energy. There are these molecules, and there's a process, there's a biochemical process, which I, I don't think we should spend time on, that actually is a way in which you use that biochemistry, the cycling of that biochemistry, uh, to um, uh, provide energy to your cells, and then by the coherent behavior of cells, of course, provide energy to your body and do all the things that we do. And, um, but integral to that process, so there, there's this fundamental level of biochemistry, but integral to that process, of course, okay, so you produce um, this, this molecule of ATP, this sort of currency, your dollars, so to speak, um, inside cells. And by the way, you produce them um, in little things called respiratory complexes, which sit inside um, little potato-looking so-called organelles called mitochondria, which I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of, and they sit inside the cell. And just to give you the scale of things, they are in, in most of your um, active or, uh, organs, um, the cells contain 500 to 1,000 of mitochondria, and inside each mitochondrion, there are maybe 500 to 1,000 of these respiratory complexes. So each cell has up to a million of these little engines producing ATP. So it's sort of extraordinary, actually. Um, but, you know, so you produce it at this highly localized level, and then you have to distribute it, of course, throughout the body. Not only that, you have to supply it. I mean, you have to, the, the, the way you produce ATP is by an so-called oxidative process. That's why you have to breathe. You breathe in oxygen that supplies um, fuel for producing ATP. Um, but of course, that's highly macroscopic. You breathe in through your mouth or nose, goes to your lungs, your lungs trans that, that energy, uh, that oxygen then gets transferred uh, to your cardiovascular system, uh, into your bloodstream, which then delivers it down at the microscopic level to the cell. So that's sort of the, the system. And um, so there are two parts. As I say, there's the fundamental biochemistry, and then there's these extraordinary networks, um, and the one of which you're most familiar with, being your, the two really the most familiar with, are your cardiovascular system, which is delivering cell, uh, oxygen to the cells. And then there's your respiratory system, your lungs, which are taking oxygen out of the air and delivering it into the cardiovascular system. So, um, you know, at first you might think, well, look, since it all happens inside cells, the actual production of your energy 
if you um, double the size of an organism, you therefore double the size of your cells. You have twice as many cells. So you have twice as many of these little engines. So you would have twice the metabolic rate. That is, you would require twice as much food to feed an animal twice the size because you have twice as many cells. Um, that's not the case. It's um, the thing that is extraordinary is that um, if you double the size of um, a mammal, let's just say mammals for the moment, um, then instead of needing twice the amount of food, twice the amount of incoming energy, you only need, roughly speaking, 75% as much anytime you double. So if you go from two grams to four grams, you double. Um, and I'm sorry, you only need 75%. So you double the size, you only need 75%. But if you went from two kilograms to four kilograms, or from 200 kilograms to 400 kilograms, it doesn't matter. You only need 75%. So each, each doubling only requires 75%, which means in English, so to speak, that um, the bigger you are, the more efficient you are because you need less energy to support the same mass of tissue. Hmm. And, um, uh, and the question then is, why is that? Where does that come from? And that comes from the, the constraints of the delivery system of these transport systems that are taking um, blood to your cells and then delivering um, uh, energy to your cells. So the, your circulatory system and so on. So, and you're all, we're all familiar with them. We know that they look sort of, if you look out the window and you look at a tree, it sort of looks like a tree inside you. It starts with your, you know, you have your heart, you pump blood through your aorta, and then it goes through this multiple branching network delivering down to capillaries. Capillaries then transfer the oxygen to the cells. And the work that I got involved with was, in fact, trying to understand where this extraordinary economy of scale, this savings, every time you double the size, or just simply saying the bigger you are, the less energy you need, uh, per cell or per gram of tissue, um, um, was um, proposing that this this theoretical idea that it is because of the constraints of the network. And um, so, without going into any details, it was that um, the various constraints of the network, such as something that seems so simple, that first of all, the network has to go everywhere. Every cell has to be fed. Um, another one was that um, the, um, as you change sizes among organisms or as you grow from a baby to an adult, even though everything is getting bigger, you go from a mouse to a whale or from a baby to an adult, even though everything is getting bigger, actually the size of your capillaries or the size of your cells do not change. Hmm. the same. You look at a cell... Um, or a, um, a capillary of a whale, it looks just like yours and mine. And the point of that is that when natural selection evolved new species, it didn't in reinvent the basic fundamental units. It built from the same fundamental units like capillaries and cells and so on and genes. It used the same thing over and over again to make, you know, horses and elephants and so on. And um, so that's, a, that's another fundamental constraint on the network, that the 
the terminal units are sort of fixed. And the last um, constraint on these kinds of networks is also coming from natural selection. And that is that the continuous feedback processes or mechanisms that are implicit in natural selection, the continually honing of the system through survival of the fittest to um, leads to a kind of optimized situation. That is that the, the circulatory system that we have, we meaning not just you and me, not just every human being that's on this planet, but every human being that's ever lived, not only every human being that's ever lived, every mammal that's ever lived, we all share the same cardiovascular system, and it is the one that has evolved to minimize the amount of energy our hearts have to do to pump blood through the system to supply oxygen to the cells. You want to minimize that in order to maximize the amount of energy left over to have sex, reproduce, and make children, and put, put forward your genes. So that's the idea. It's sort of um, to increase in technical terms, to maximize fitness, mm -hmm. minimize the amount of energy you need in keeping organisms alive. And that means optimizing the network. And just to finish off that story, if you do that and you put all that, those words, which I said in English, into mathematics, which is non-trivial, but mm -hmm. you can do it. If you put it into and you grind the, <laughs> the machine, so to speak, out comes these extraordinary scaling laws and this 75% savings. And indeed, the other thing that comes out of it is that any physiological quantity that we have, which we haven't talked about, or the other ones, one of which is indeed what you just which you started out the question with, and that is that the time taken to metabolize a drug is much faster in a mouse than it is in a human being. We can calculate that. And again, it satisfies a very simple scaling law, which has built into it this kind of 25%, this one quarter uh, kind of quantity. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot there. Let me... Yes, there is a lot there. And I'm sorry, I talked too much. Let me repeat some of that to make sure... I'm following, and then I have some follow-up questions that I think um, will make this more, even more clear to people. So you mentioned the concept of economies of scale, which many people have heard about in another context. You typically hear about that in the context of an economics course or a company becoming more efficient as it grows. And we are going to talk about companies at the end, but something similar seems to be true with animals. As the animal gets bigger and bigger, the animal is more metabolically efficient. And what you're saying is, if you double the size of an animal, if you increase it by 100%, you don't need 100% more uh, fuel, food, to power that animal. You only need a 75% increase. Right. So there's this economy of scale. And ultimately, that very specific and quantifiably elegant uh, way of describing that is due to the fact that all animals are A, made out of the same basic building blocks. Mm -hmm. Evolution is playing with the same basic building blocks in the form of our cells and, and what they do. And at the end of the day, animals are simply being optimized by natural selection forces so that they're putting as little effort and energy into running their bodies as possible such that they can put as much energy as possible into reproduction. 
So your body wants, if I'm going to anthropomorphize, your body wants to spend as little effort as possible beating your heart and pumping your blood and spend as much of that energy that you have from your food as possible on ultimately finding a mate. Correct. So that's the idea. That's the conceptual framework. And as I said, and you've said it so much more articulately than I did. I thank you. <laughs> I've read the book a couple of times. <laughs> uh, uh, so yes, the only thing I would add to that is that that also implies, in terms of the concept of economy of scale, is that um, that means that um, per gram or per cell, you need less energy. Therefore, your cells are working uh, less hard than your dogs or your cats, but your horse's cells are working less hard than yours hmm. in a very systematic, predictable, quantitative fashion. And, um, and, and that has extraordinary implications um, you know, in terms of uh, you know, lifespans, and uh, the amount of damage that is being done by metabolizing and so on, and how long you sleep and so on. And we can discuss those if you wish. But um, it's fundamental to life, and it is in that sense that I mean economy of scale. Mm -hmm. The bigger you are, the less you need per either gram of tissue or per cell. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I was about to ask about some of the things you just touched on. So as animals get bigger, their cells have to work less hard, basically. Mm -hmm. And how does this tie into things like lifespan? So bigger animals tend to live a long time. Little animals like mice tend mm -hmm. to live for a very short period of time. How does that tie into this? And how does it tie into, you know, seemingly you know, seemingly everyday things like, you know, why do little babies sleep for m most of the day? Oh. But as we grow, we don't have to sleep as much. And why do we even grow at all and then stop growing? All of the above come from this. <laughs> so indeed, so let's first talk about aging and death, particularly mortality. Um, so, uh, you know, but, but the fact that you're metabolizing, the fact that your cells are doing work, um, uh, and, and, in, and the fact that the, that work is primarily being done in order to combat um, the, the, the wear and tear that is naturally occurring. So for example, in, um, in this process of metabolism, you are generally dissipating energy, that is making energy that is not useful um, uh, by two processes. One is, if we think of that network, your cardiovascular system, there's blood flowing in it. It's being pushed through your arteries and uh, capillaries and, and so forth. And it's wearing you out, actually, very just like, um, <laughs> you know, trucks driving on the highway mm -hmm. or um, uh, water flowing through the pipes in your house. They eventually actually do wear. And that's what's happening inside you. And of course, you are repairing yourself as well. Um, uh, and uh, there's a trade-off because repair is very expensive um, to, to, to continually repair. And so, um, uh, the, uh, but that eventually, that production of wear and tear, which is in physics is called entropy, the production of entropy, 
and uh, is, is, um, has a uh, much more profound origin in terms of the so-called second law of thermodynamics, which simply says that if you create order, if you spend your energy to create order, which is what we're trying to do when we eat to keep us whole and keep us healthy, you necessarily create disorder. Mm -hmm. That creation of disorder is called entropy. And so it's inevitable that um, you do create wear and tear. And that's why, you know, we have problems with the environment. I mean, we can come back to that later when we talk about cities and so on. But um, in the context of our bodies in terms of biology and life and death, um, we create disorder in the form of wear and tear, first of all, in the networks, but also in the production of this of our fundamental energy in terms of this molecule ATP, because in so doing, there are sort of biochemical networks. And one of the products there is something that are called oxygen radicals, which many people mm -hmm. heard about. Um, that's one of the um, uh, products of the production of ATP. And those oxygen radicals, well, all that means is that it's the difference between an oxygen radical and the oxygen we're breathing is that it's stripped of an electron. And that means it's charged, which means it's, um, it, it attracts other things and can be highly destructive. And so, uh, and we have mechanisms inside us to, to try to combat that. And of course, there's now been a whole industry created in terms of uh, antioxidants and so on, partly, hopefully, to help combat that. But it is inevitably creating uh, damage inside ourselves. And as I say, we do repair ourselves. So, um, but the crucial point here is two things. One is there's this inextricable, continuous degradation of the system, which is ha happens to us. And natural selection has evolved so that we repair enough of ourselves so that we live, if we were in our so-called natural state, till about 35 or 40. Mm -hmm. And in that time, we'll have um, had maybe 10 to 15 children, offspring, of which maybe half to two-thirds would have survived. And that was our natural state. And by the time we're 35 or 40, Natural selection doesn't care. We've done our job, we've produced our children, and then we would die. And indeed, uh, the natural lifespan of a human being, if you, you know, prior to about, I don't know, 1900, very recently, worldwide, the expected lifespan of a human being was between 35 and 40. It's only in the last 150 years that it has changed, and we'll come back. We can come back to that later because it's actually to do with cities um, and, and health and so on, healthcare and so forth. But um, uh, so we have this degradation that's going on, and um, uh, but we we learned uh, just a little while ago that we have this economy of scale, meaning there's um, we require less energy to su to support a cell in a larger animal than a smaller one. Therefore, there's less damage is being done in a larger animal rather than a smaller one. Therefore, a larger animal will live longer in a predictable way, in a way that you can actually calculate. And uh, that's why uh, large animals live much longer than small ones. A mouse 
lives maybe two to three years. A shrew, which is the smallest mammal, lives maybe uh, one to two. And a blue whale lives for about 125 years. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, and their, their rate of aging is extremely slow. And so, um, the, you know, this, the, this, this economy of scale and this hegemony, if you like, of the network controlling the distribution of energy has extraordinary implications for not just our physiology, but our whole life history from birth until death. And going back to the second part of your question, namely concerning uh, babies to adults, mm -hmm. um, uh, it's a similar thing. We do much more, um, we do much more damage uh, potentially uh, when we're smaller than, than when we're larger. And in fact, um, if we could, if you, maybe I should talk about sleep a little bit because it's mm -hmm. closely related to aging, surprisingly. I mean, at first we don't think in those terms, but aging and sleep are very closely connected because the reason we sleep is that we are, as I say, continually damaging ourselves, so to speak, and thereby aging. Um, but we're also repairing ourselves. As I'm sitting here, my body is not just creating damage, but it's repairing my liver, my pancreas, and, and so forth. Um, uh, but it's very hard for it to repair my brain. Mm -hmm because um, I'm also trying to be articulate and think and have a conversation with you. At the same time, very hard if I spend a lot of my time and energy trying to fix mm -hmm. all those little damages that are being done in my neurons. In my it's, like neurons. An, it's like an auto mechanic, right? Your, your auto mechanic's going to turn off your car and park it in exactly. the garage before you, it fixes the engine. Exactly. You do not, you do not repair your car while driving. <laughs> You stop it, you either get out and repair it yourself, or you have a dedicated time. You take it to a garage and give it to a mechanic who has a dedicated time repairing it. Um, the same with the, uh, something like the internet. When they want to um, uh, do something to the internet, repair something, or uh, your local server or whatever, they try to do it at night or on weekends when there's less activity. And so it is with our brains um, that we have to have a dedicated time because uh, we, we need to be active, we need to be in control. And um, so we need to shut the system down in order to do that. And here's really the other crucial part about the brain. And that is we need to repair it faithfully, meaning that you know, it doesn't really matter very much if you don't get things exactly right repairing your pancreas or your liver. And in fact, you know, it, it, does, it does age, of course, um, but it, lasts, it can last 100 years. And if it's a little bit different at my age than it was at your age, you know, okay, I'm not as healthy as you, but, you know, I'm still functioning. But if I don't do that to my brain, if I don't repair, make sure that, it's very carefully and in a detailed way repaired. Very soon, I will not be me. I will start to become dysfunctional. Um, I will start to have all kinds of serious um, psychological and mental issues. And I will no doubt become demented and, in fact, will die. Let me just tell you, tell your listeners, if they're, if they're not familiar with it, it's quite extraordinary that um, 
This was first done um, right at the turn of the 18th to 19th century, about 1900, by um, a Russian biologist named um, Manassien, who um, did the following. She took puppies, took a bunch of puppies, and um, it's kind of a horrible experiment in a way, and would not let them sleep. They were simply never allowed to sleep. And within less than a week or two, they all died. She took another bunch of puppies and starved them for over 20 days, nearly a month. And they lived. And once she gave them food, they came back to being normal. And so um, the brain, I mean, requires detailed repair mechanisms, which is what we have. So mm -hmm. we spend, even though the brain is only 20, is, is only 2% of our weight, 2% of our tissue is brain. It takes 20% of the food you eat goes to, to uh, support your brain. And almost all of that goes to keeping it in uh, this uh, faithfully repaired state. So the reason that we're mortal and that we're finite and we die is because as a natural consequence of being alive and having metabolism, we're accumulating wear and tear that will eventually yes. kill us. Yes. And the reason that sleep is so important is because it's, it's fixing the wear and tear that's accumulating. And the reason that bigger animals need to sleep less and smaller animals sleep more, human babies sleep more than adults, mice sleep 20 plus hours a day, it's because they're chugging along so quickly in a metabolic sense that they accumulate damage faster and they actually need to dedicate more time to fixing the damage. Exactly. And that was the punchline of what I was saying. Exactly. Interesting. But another one of those, it's kind of a secondary implication of this extraordinary systematic economy of scale. The bigger you are, the less energy is needed to support the cell. Mm -hmm. And uh, therefore less damage. And just as you said, therefore less sleep. And it's kind of amazing. Most people don't know that an elephant only sleeps three or four hours a night. Hmm. Um, and um, whereas a mouse sleeps 16 or so, and a blue whale, by the way, only sleeps probably about two hours, if that. Hmm. Um, and, and as you well know, as you already said, a baby sleeps 16 to 18 hours a night when it's newborn. Um, so once upon a time, we slept much longer than we did now, um, you know, in our, in our own individual life, life lives. Um, and, but we settled down at eight, and that's what we need to keep this, you know, our brain functioning. And we all know the symptoms if you have a lousy night's sleep and if you, uh, you know, especially when you're a student or you have some huge project you've got to get done and you only get, you know, five or six hours a night after a week of that, you're in pretty bad shape. Mm -hmm. So one of the last questions I want to ask about organisms before we move on to cities is, and I don't want to get too deep into the math here, but and for those that don't know, Jeffrey is a physicist in terms of his background. So there's a lot of math in the book that's fascinating. But uh, what, what's sort of funny is um, a lot of people have heard of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the famous scene in that book where 
someone says the answer to life is 42. Yes. When you read Jeffrey's book, Scale, you might say that the, the, the answer to life is the number four. So where does this number four come up? We've sort of touched on it very briefly so far, but where does four come from? And how does that tie to concepts from fractal geometry? Thank you. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> we, we, I already remarked and we've discussed the uh, scaling of metabolic rate. It's the most fundamental because it's you know, energy is fundamental. And uh, that has this sort of 25% savings with each doubling. So there's the number four, one quarter, 25, 25%. But what is extraordinary, and what I didn't say then, is that if you look at any physiological quantity that you can measure, something as mundane as the length of your aorta um, uh, and so on, but and something as sophisticated as lifespan um, uh, or or so anything to do with your physiology or life history that can be measured, then it scales with somehow dominated by this number one quarter. So, um, uh, you know, things like uh, your growth rate also increases in the same way as your met metabolic rate, not surprisingly, maybe. But again, with a 75% savings with each doubling and so forth. So there's there's all these um, the, these multiple quantities, all when you look at how they scale, are dominated by this number one quarter, this number four. And indeed, where does it come from? Well, it does come from the um, uh, the proper these properties that I try to articulate about these the, the multiple networks that sustain our lives. Uh, the one I, we've concentrated on is the circulatory system, but it's true of all our multiple networks that transport energy and information, that they um, all have these kinds of properties that they have to be, they have to go everywhere, they have to be space filling, they have their terminal units that are invariant or change with size, and there's this kind of optimization. And out of that comes this number four from mathematics, but that number four has an interesting interpretation uh, that uh, comes also from the mathematics. The mathematics also says that the uh, optimal configuration of these networks is that they're fractal-like. That is, they, they, you know, if you, it's like a tree. If you cut out any piece of a tree, it looks like a little tree. And then if you take another piece of that, it looks like an even smaller tree. And that's true of of, of the vast majority of the networks inside us. And um, that fractal behavior is a reflection of the, so to speak, optimization that we're striving towards. And, um, and, and that number four gets reflected or is a reflection of two things, actually. One is um, this fractal nature, uh, but the other is that the number four is really actually from the mathematics three plus one, which sounds a bit <laughs> Zen-like, but um, it, the three is the dimensionality of space in which we live. You said it's space filling, it has to go everywhere. That means it's sensitive to the dimensions of space that it has to fill, and that's the three dimensions of space we live in, um, so to speak, up, down, and sideways. And, um, that, uh, and the plus one comes from this fractality. Fractals endow objects geometrically in terms of the way they scale 
with something that can be interpreted as an extra dimension. Mm-hmm. And so, very roughly speaking, the four is actually the dimension of space we fill plus one, which means that if we lived in, I don't know, 11 dimensions, which my string theory friends <laughs> think maybe we do, uh, instead of being, everything being dominated by uh, one quarter, they'd be dominated by one twelfth. One twelfth, <laughs> 11 plus one. The way that and for indeed, those listening, one, oh, go ahead. No, I would just add one thing. Um, it may have occurred already to listeners. Look, you know, if we lived in um, in in two dimensions, if you lived in sort mm-hmm. of flat space, everything we do dominated by one third instead mm-hmm. of one quarter. So we've actually tried to do some little experiments on on looking at plants that grow, you know, like ivy, ah, dimensionally. And um, uh, we, the, the, we had a student do this some years ago. And indeed, what we learned was that the data on the stuff that he measured was consistent with the one-third. But unfortunately, you couldn't grow ivy big enough to have big enough change of scale to really test it rigorously. So mm-hmm. it's, but it was consistent with one-third. It was just Interesting. A, so it was interesting, you know, we, and we've often thought about looking at flatfish and things like that. But again, there isn't the data out there. There isn't enough sort of um, uh, range of sizes to really test it. Mm-hmm. So we're three-dimensional creatures, spatially speaking. Everyone understands that intuitively. You can go sure. forward, back, up, down, left, right. And then when you start talking about the fractal geometry stuff, everything gets a plus one. So we're in some sense... Yes, if it's fully fractal, if what's called completely fractal, then it adds one. Mm-hmm. And the way... Most fractals are only partial. I see. The way that I tried to wrap my head around this when I first read it was I imagined like a, a string of yarn and we could just call that one dimensional. And then yes. maybe, maybe you just bend the string in an S shape on itself so that it's rectangular. You could imagine taking a a string of yarn, bending it so that it's a flat rectangle, and now it's a one-dimensional string, but it's behaving as if it's a two-dimensional sheet. Is that the intuition? Yes, it's sort of like that. And in the the book, I tried to give the example of um, bed sheets, Hmm. uh, which are two-dimensional. You know, it's a sheet. It's two-dimensional. But... um, you know, when you scrunch it up, when you put it inside the washing machine, it becomes three-dimensional. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's like a ball. You can scrunch it all up into a ball, and it acts three-dimensionally. And so, and in fact, by the way, if you look at all the creases, all those multiple creases, some of which may be, you know, quite large, maybe an inch or a couple of inches, some are tiny, um, you know, a tenth of an inch and so forth. But people have actually looked at that. And if you look at the distribution of all those creases, they follow a fractal law. So it is a fractal, actually, a scrunched up sheet, if you look at all the multiple creases. And and it is acting as if it's a three-dimensional object, even though it's a sheet, which is a two-dimensional object. Interesting. So... At the end of the day, all of this, all of these scaling laws are about network architecture, right. and they dictate why we're mortal and finite, why we grow the way we grow, and so forth. But organisms are quite different from cities in some ways. 
And so I thought we could start talking about cities now. And in the book, at least at one point, you distinguish between two aspects of cities, one being their physical infrastructure, the roads and the power grids and, and those things. And the second being the socioeconomic factors that are enabled by this infrastructure. Right. And so can you talk about each of those and how they're similar or different to what we've been talking about in organisms? Sure, yes. So, yes, so um, uh, just to um, elaborate on what you, uh, just how you introduced it, um, you know, when you, when you say the word city uh, to someone, of course, they immediately think of the city in terms of its physical infrastructure, that is, um, you know, the, the buildings and roads and even the, maybe the telephone wires and all the rest of it. But it's very much the image of the city, the skyscrapers of New York or the boulevards of Paris, very much the image of a city. And of course, that's what that is a city. But, you know, it's in a certain sense, it's the less interesting part of a city because it's actually just the, the stage or the backdrop for facilitating social interaction. That's why we developed it. That's why we evolved it. And, and I would even argue that it is the most marvelous, wonderful machine we've ever invented because it is the facilitator of social interactions. It's a place, I mean, a successful city is, um, in terms of its infrastructure, is a place that encourages in social interaction. It has uh, lecture halls and stadiums and uh, universities and schools and mm -hmm. but places to bring people together. Businesses can be thought of that way. Places to bring people together to create ideas, to innovate, to create wealth, and so forth. And, and, and a great city not only has that, but it has informal places, lots of squares and coffee places and parks. Again, to bring people together to, to create wealth, ideas, increase standards, the quality of life. And that's what it's done. It's been unbelievably successful at doing it. Um, and so, um, so it's useful in that context to think of the city as these two components, its mm -hmm. physicality, its infrastructure, which you could think of as associated with metabolism in terms of biology, because it, you know, and the way I was talking about metabolism in biology was uh, very much dominated by the um, transport of metabolic energy through networks. And that's what a city does. I mean, it's the, the roads, of course, and the, the transport system in general, and the electoral lines and the water lines and so on. And so in that sense, if we just focus on that for the moment, the city is quite biological and it's quite analogous to an organism. And so um, if you also think that as cities have evolved, and they haven't been evolved for very long after all, they've only been around at most for a few thousand years and the vast majority for a few hundred years. Um, but nevertheless, they have evolved by some process akin to, you know, natural selection, evolution. There has been some version of that taking place. And in that sense, there's also been um, a process towards some kind of optimization that's going on. That is, the, the various uh, structures and the various transport systems and so forth have evolved towards that. Now, so if you take that and you go back to the ideas that we were talking about 
in terms of organisms and uh, networks and metabolism, we would um, have a similar process here that the the kind of the metabolism of a city in terms of its physicality, um, in terms of the physical aspect of it, would be like an organism. It would have an economy of scale. That is, if you looked at various quantities, they would scale. And I didn't use this phrase sublinearly, meaning going back to um, uh, uh, the, the organisms, um, that three quarters, that 75% is less than one. Mm -hmm. And we call that sublinear. And cities would also be sublinear. That is, if you doubled the size of a city, instead of needing uh, twice as many roads and twice as many gas stations and twice as much length of electrical lines, you'd only need some percentage of those. And indeed, wonderfully, if you look at the data um, across the globe, uh, urban systems across the globe, that's what happens. <laughs> there is this extraordinary systematic economy of scale that if you double the size of a city, you don't need twice as many roads and twice as many gas stations uh, and twice as, as the length of electrical lines. You only need not 75% as in biology, but 85%. <laughs> so the only difference is that the amount that you save as you get bigger is a little bit less than it is for um, organisms. And by the way, we don't really understand why that is so. You know, why it is, it is somehow related to the two-dimensionality of a city rather than three-dimensionality. But we don't fully understand this. Is still, that part is still a work in progress. But we looked at data across the globe for all the physical infrastructure. And amazingly, the same, what was fantastic, it had the same kind of universality. Mm -hmm. namely, uh, just as um, uh, this, and I didn't really emphasize this, that, that scaling of metabolic rate and all the other physiological quantities I talk mostly about mammals, but it's true of all taxonomic groups, birds, fish, insects, crustacea. And so it is for cities that the scaling that we see, for example, in the United States is the same as, as we see in uh, Argentina, as we see in Brazil, as we see in China, as we see in Japan, as we see in um, Spain. So um, there's this kind of universality that is at work. Um, which is sort of extraordinary because, you know, when you think of a city, especially somehow, you think of all the politics and the urban planning and, and all the development that goes on and the highly individuality, individual nature of a city mm -hmm. and so forth. And yet when all is said and done in this very coarse-grained way, everybody's sort of lined up. Um, um, according to um, the, the, this very simple law, these very simple laws. And so um, just as it is that, and I didn't put it this way, but in, um, in biology, even though the whale lives in the ocean and the elephant has a trunk and the giraffe has a long neck and we walk on two feet and the mouse scurries around and we all live in different environments, we're actually at the kind of 80, 90% level scaled versions of one another following these nonlinear scaling laws. So it is in, say, in the United States that um, despite the fact that, um, you know, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Santa Fe, where I live, 
um, all have different histories, have different geographies, even different cultures. Um, nevertheless, they are scale versions of one another, at least mm -hmm. as we've talked so far about the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, amazingly, Santa Fe is actually a scaled down version of New York, although it looks completely different. Yeah. And so on. So that's sort of amazing. So another way of saying that that's kind of interesting is, so what you've just told us essentially is that if I go and count all of the gas stations in Santa Fe and I get a number that tells me the, the per capita concentration of gas stations in Santa Fe, I can predict with high precision the per capita density of gas stations in New York City. Right, yes, at the 80-90% level. Now, by the way, I should add, we chose gas stations, but you know, in the last 10, 20 years, things have changed about gas stations and so mm -hmm. on. So there's caveats to this, of course, because there are social changes and innovations that come in, and we can talk about that in maybe a little bit. But so there's the infrastructure. But you know, as I said a, a, a little while ago, in a certain sense, that's the uninteresting part, and it's 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 sort of um, it is biological, but it's not the part that is the essential feature of a city, which is socioeconomic activity, meaning something to do with the way people interact with each other and um, the things that are outside of biology. And so we looked at socioeconomic metrics like wages, like uh, crime, like um, uh, the, the um, number of AIDS cases, number of flu cases, um, number of patents produced, uh, that is the kind of um, innovation of a city and so on. And we looked at those as a function of city size. And here we found something different. We did find scaling. We found very good evidence of scaling that it's quite regular um, and, and systemat systematic. But instead of an economy of scale, meaning the bigger you are, the less per capita, in biology, the less per cell. Now we found the bigger you are, the more per capita. Hmm. The higher the wages per capita, the more AIDS cases per capita, uh, the more fancy restaurants per capita, the more patents per capita. Uh, but what was fascinating was all of those to the same degree. Hmm. Not only all of those to the same degree, but it was the same across the globe, roughly speaking. That is, and, and what the law was, was that if you double the size of a city, you don't get just twice as many patents produced, but you get twice as many plus 15%. <laughs> uh, or you get, uh, if you ask, it's violent crime, you get twice as much violent crime, you double the size of a city. No, you get twice as many plus 15%. So this was true of all socioeconomic activity, whether it was good, hmm. like wages and patents and education, uh, or whether it was bad and ugly, like uh, disease or, or crime, and, and indeed like the pandemic. Um, we've looked at, of course, data in the pandemic. It's quite similar. So um, uh, it's quite fascinating. So there was this extraordinary regularity um, not just that cities scale within an urban system, so that um, Los Angeles is in fact a scaled down New York, I mean, at the sort of 80, 85% level, um, but, and, uh, but that um, it's true across the globe. It's, uh, it's not that 
um, and you have to be a little bit careful here, it's within urban systems. That mm. is scaling through, scaling across China or Japan is the same as it is across the United States, but it doesn't say New York is a scaled down version of Beijing. I see. That is, it is if you renormalize. So um, New York is, is a scaled up San Francisco in the same way that uh, uh, Tokyo would be a scaled up Osaka within Japan, for example. Um, nevertheless, um, if you, so they scale in the same way together. Um, and uh, what distinguishes Tokyo from uh, New York is um, basically the overall scale of things, which is to do, of course, with the difference between Japanese culture and um, United States culture. So, um, so violent crime or murders, say murders, will scale the same way between Tokyo and Osaka as it does between, say, New York and um, San Francisco. Um, but the overall scale would be different because Japan is a much less violent society than mm -hmm. the United States. And that, of course, is outside of this framework. Mm -hmm. There is, I mean, this brings me to an interesting area, which is the nature of social networks. Yes. Um, there's a great quote in the book where you say, cities are collective phenomena whose origins emerge from the underlying dynamics and organization of how people interact with one another in social networks. And so I wanted to ask you about the evolving nature of social interaction and in particular social media. So social media is drastically changing the way that social networks actually look and how we're able to communicate sure. with people within our own cities and, and elsewhere around the globe. So how do you see social media changing the growth dynamics that we that we talk about for cities? Sure. Let me answer. Let me first back off a little bit and first go to the first part of what you said. And that is because it's the first part is really um, answering um, where in the hell do these scaling laws come from in mm -hmm. cities? You know, I mean, uh, we, we, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that as far as the infrastructure of cities, I already said it, it's to do with the network, you know, the infrastructural networks. They're much like the biological networks, our circulatory system, respiratory system, and so forth. But uh, what about these socioeconomic ones? Well, they are, they're derived from social networks. The thing, and, and the reason that cities are sort of scale versions of one another socioeconomically, and that it's the same across the globe, is that social networks are pretty much the same, not just across the United States, because we're all Americans, so to speak, but across the globe, because we're all human beings and we mm -hmm. all have pretty much the same kind of social DNA, modulated, of course, by um, um, our culture, our local culture and geography and history and so on. But the dominant thing, of course, is already sort of encoded, so to speak, in our genes and our neural networks. Um, so, and, and that's why the scaling of um, the number of patents produced as a function of city size is related to the number of AIDS cases. Because the, in the end, they all have their origin in the interaction between people. Hmm. Okay, in much the same way, by the way, um, to bring it to something more current, 
um, that uh, the reason we have pandemics is we interact and we exchange, unfortunately, viruses between each other. But, you know, and that's what cities do best. That's mm -hmm. uh, why it's much, much worse in cities. Cities, that's what cities are there for, is for you to transfer, quote, viruses. But of course, they're supposed to be good viruses, like ideas mm -hmm. and money and so on. <laughs> so it's quite similar. The dynamic is actually quite similar. And so um, in, in combating a disease, like a, a pandemic especially, um, you have to decrease social interactions, which is completely against the whole functionality of city, and of course means that you suffer socioeconomically for other things. But it's also why, and it's sort of obvious, why, you know, flus and colds went way down this year, because we're all physically separating. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, um, uh, and that is the underlying mathematical theory for how all this works. But that brings up exactly the question which you've asked, which is, um, okay, with the coming of the internet and the coming of IT in general, um, we've expanded, uh, the, the, so to speak, the reach at least, and the immediacy of social networks. Um, and uh, how does that change things? And uh, I must say, when I first started thinking about this, I thought, well, that's going to have a very profound effect. And I, it may well, it may well have a profound effect on these scaling, on these, on the things. I, of course, it has a profound effect in terms of, <laughs> I mean, we just saw it in the last four years and mm -hmm. in terms of the election and so forth as an example. But I, meant, I mean, in, 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 what effect does it have on these very general laws and kind of universalities? Does it change them? Does it change the 15% mm -hmm. uh, and so on and so forth and all the various implications of that 15%, which we haven't yet touched on. Um, and um, I, I first thought, yes, it's going to have, you know, it's, it's going to have a huge effect. But the more I thought about it and the more I read about previous major innovations, the less I was convinced hmm. because um, I, I began to realize that you know, a much bigger impact on, on um, human socioeconomic activity um, occurred much earlier. It occurred, of course, with the, first of all, the invention of the steam engine and the coming of trains and locomotives, because what that did was um, change people's spatial reach. Um, I, I mean, until the coming of the train, and even actually until relatively recently, the vast majority of people on the planet um, didn't move more than about 20 miles, 10, 20 miles in their entire lifetime. They stayed highly localized um, because they, <laughs> they were limited by walking. And if they were fortunate, uh, being able to use a horse. But most people were limited by walking. Um, and so um, they were highly limited in their spatial extent. And then comes along the locomotive, which opens it up. And of course, we wouldn't have America if it wasn't for the locomotive. I mean, that, that's what allowed people, even people that were very modest means to move very large distances compared to what they could before. So that is an extraordinary change, an extraordinary uh, discontinuity in, um, in, in human history. But 
you know, not so long after the coming of the locomotive, within, you know, 50 years or so of its big impact, uh, we had uh, another um, equally, and maybe even more so change, was the invention of the telephone. I mean, up to the telephone, messages and communication between people, unless you were in their proximity, uh, would take at least days, mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes weeks and occasionally months you know, to go overseas and so on. And, uh, you know, suddenly you could have instant communication. So we've had instant communication for well over 100 years through the telephone. And, um, <clears throat> and in fact, in some ways, more intimate instant communication that we've had now because we actually talk to one another now, of course, we don't even talk to one another. Uh, I mean, we, well, we do. I mean, uh, but uh, um, with, before, before the most recent innovations of Zoom and so on, um, it was basically, you know, messages. Mm -hmm. I mean, text and emails and so on, which are, have a certain impersonal quality to them, whereas the telephone at least was still personal and, and still involved uh, much more, a much closer interaction. Um, so, you know, nothing, it, but so what did that do? Well, as far as we can tell, it didn't change these scaling laws. Um, and by the way, let me just make a tangential comment here because that's an interesting question. It's been very hard to test them historically because mm -hmm. we don't have data. But some of my colleagues um, did a wonderful test they had data, archaeological data, which is a bit, you know, I don't know. I mean, archaeological data is is it comes from things like pot shards and measurements of it's very health. coarse. It's very coarse, of course. Nevertheless, you know, there is a science of it, and they took this data of um, pre-Columbian urban system in Mexico, and which contains about fifty communities. Turns out. And they looked at all these, these, these various archaeological metrics. And what did they find that socioeconomic things scaled with this 15% addition, hmm. which was very nice, actually. It's a bit controversial, obviously, because of the coarse, the very coarse nature of this data, but it was satisfying that at least it was consistent with that. Hmm. But in general, it's been hard to test. But the tests that we've done, the data that has been done, um, uh, shows that you know it it hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. um, so what so what did it do? It sped up life, and this is something we did not talk about uh, in biology. And I'd like to spend a minute or two just saying the words in biology. It was implied in what I said that mm -hmm. those network effects and those scaling laws have also implied in them as a consequence is that the bigger you are, the slower everything is in a systematic world. And we touched on it because of your opening question about um, how long drugs get, dis how long it takes to dissipate drugs in your body. It happens very quickly in mice and very slowly in elephants, say, or in, or in us, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. And that's because things slow down in a systematic, predictable way. And that's associated with that economy of scale driven by the, the networks. Now move to cities where we have the opposite of economy of scale, increasing returns to scale, the super linear scaling, as we call it. 
And uh, I didn't say this, but concomitantly with that, we have instead of the slowing of the pace of life, the increasing pace of life. And this is crucial, that that network phenomenon increases the pace of life. And it's easy to understand because where does it come from? It comes from when we gather together, what cities do, bringing people together, A talks to B, B talks to C, C talks to D, and we build up on each other. We build up, we build up um, conversations, ideas develop, most of which are useless and irrelevant to most other people. They don't, <laughs> they don't go very far, but they are building on ideas. Mm -hmm. And what is remarkable about cities and the whole phenomenon of this positive feedback in social networks is every once in a while it produces the theory of relativity or quantum <laughs> mechanics or an Amazon or a Google. That's mm -hmm. what it, that's what it's done. Um, and so um, that positive feedback is the origin of the superlinear. The, the bigger you are, the more you have per capita. That's why big cities get more because they increase social interaction. And at the same time, instead of slowing the pace of life, they increase the pace of life in a systematic, predictable way. So diseases spread faster, ideas spread faster, and so on. So I, I want to start to talk about companies because you brought up a few that I Absolutely. specifically want to ask about. So, so far, a very high-level summary for me is animals follow these sublinear scaling laws which makes us finite. It makes us mortal. We grow, we stop grow, exactly. growth, and then we die. Cities exhibit some of these superlinear scaling laws, and this gives them the potential for unbounded growth and effectively right. immortality. Exactly. So that's the idea. We didn't, we didn't say, I didn't go through that, but that's exactly what the implications of this are, um, that, uh, that um, sublinear scaling economies of scale lead to bounded growth, which is what we have, which explains, in fact, without going into any of the details, why it is that you grow quickly and then you stop and you mm -hmm. spend most of your life in a roughly stable configuration. Um, and of course, and, and you immediately realize that that's very bad in terms of our socioeconomic paradigm. I mean, since the uh, discovery of fossil fuels, the exploitation of fossil fuels mm -hmm. and the industrial revolution, and the discovery of capitalism, entrepreneurship, and so on, um, the paradigm is one of open-ended growth. And what is very nice about this uh, theory is that the positive feedback in social networks induces um, this superlinear behavior. The more you, the, the bigger you are, the more you have per capita. And if you feed that into what that says about growth, it says instead of bounded growth, you have open-ended growth, mm -hmm. which is what we have. So it's very self-consistent and it's very predictive. Um, it does have built into it um, a fatal consequence, a potentially fatal consequence, and that is that you cannot sustain that open-ended growth indefinitely you, uh, unless, and this is what the theory says, unless you have... Uh, unless you innovate, unless you sort of, so to speak, start the clock over again by reinventing yourself. Mm -hmm. um, because otherwise, the, the theory tells you, you would collapse in some finite time. And it goes by the name technically of a finite time singularity. In the mathematics, there's something called a finite time singularity, which says 
that the system will collapse in some finite time unless you, so to speak, reset the clock. Mm-hmm. You make a paradigm shift. You, um, um, you discover oil, you discover coal, you invent computers, you, dis- you invent the IIT. Um, all these sort of are major paradigm shift that sort of, so to speak, resets the clock and um, allows you to continue with open-ended growth. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the price you pay for that, going back to what, how you started this conversation, the price you pay for that is that you have to do everything faster and faster. Mm-hmm. And that is where the rub is, is that can you, in fact, continue that in- increasing acceleration of the pace of life? Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting question. We could probably spend an entire podcast. We could, on. and that sort of you know leads into all kinds of speculative phenomena uh, beyond what we've discussed. All I've said up to now, pretty much, is you know has a, a very sound scientific basis and is confirmed by data and and so on and so forth. Once we get into this area of what do we do about open-ended growth and collapse, it becomes much more speculative. Mm-hmm. But so it is talk- related to the company stuff. Yes. So now let's let's shift the companies. So in some sense, you could say that companies are more like organisms than cities in that they are mortal. They are born, they grow, they stop growing, and then they die. Yes. And so why is that? And what is perhaps um, the analog of metabolism in a company? Yes. So these are tough questions, actually. These are, I mean, uh, to tell you the truth, I mean, and, and part of the reason they're tough is unlike cities and organisms, um, we can't get data. I mean, we can get some data. We get mm-hmm. data. In fact, the data that we have is uh, is based on basically on tax returns, and uh, that's potentially public. Although we have to pay a minor fortune to get hold of that data. <laughs> by the way, <laughs> uh, but we have that data, and that data just so that we, everything I'm going to talk about is based on that data set. And that data covers covers all US publicly traded company since about 1950. Mm-hmm. So, um, so everything I say is based on that. We don't have private companies and we don't have data before that. So there's, but, um, but, um, but what we also need, so, you know, um, one of the things that is very important for understanding organisms in particular, but also cities, is we we know an enormous amount about our physiology. We know what our, you know, we know what we look like on our insides, both macroscopically in terms of the, you know, all these networks and our organs and so on, but also within ourselves. We know in great detail what goes on in ourselves, you know, about our genes and so on. What do we know about companies? Despite all of the business schools, case studies and so on. Not a lot, actually, in terms of the kinds of things we need to know. What are the networks inside companies? Who's talking to who? Mm-hmm. How does it really work? Who is that? You know, it's proprietary, right? And it's very hard to get. As I say, there are case studies, but there isn't the kind of systematic study of the the, the number of companies. By the way, in that data set, is about thirty thousand. What you'd like to have is all the details of what goes on inside those 30,000 companies, many of which no longer exist. Mm -hmm. That's what you'd like to have. And of course, we don't. 
So there's big caveats, and that's what makes answering your questions a little bit more difficult. Nevertheless, we can ask the question, the first question that starts off all of these studies, and that is, do companies scale? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is, is Walmart or Google a scaled-up version of some small company that is in your town? And roughly speaking, the answer is yes. Um, you know, if you look at um, the various metrics that we have, what do we have? We have sales, we have um, income, we have expenses, we have number of employees, we have their assets. So we have all these various things that you can imagine need to be reported to the IRS and they get sifted through uh, data sets that we buy uh, from Dun & Bradstreet, for anyone interested. Um, it's called CompuStat, and we use that data set mostly to, to examine this. We do have, by the way, I should mention, um, we have a Chinese collaborator in Beijing who had access to similar data for the Beijing and Shanghai stock markets. Hmm. And one of the remarkable things is that that data, even though it was only, you know, it's the stock market's only been going 10 or 15 years, mimics the US stock market in terms of the scaling results. That's just a side comment. So that was that was kind of nice. But um, so the data um, does show uh, good evidence of scaling, but there's much more variance. There's much more spread and noise in the data, as you might expect, because many of these companies are only, who are only 10 years old. And, and uh, part of the conceptual framework behind scaling is that it often represents, as I mentioned talking about biology, something that's being optimized in the system. And, you know, life has been around a very long time. And so, you know, all these feedback mechanisms and natural selection have led to very good scaling. And if you look at those graphs, they line up beautifully. If you look at cities, well, they've only been around hundreds of years, some a few thousand, maybe. So indeed, there's more variance, but it's still very good. You look at companies, mm -hmm. tens of years, well, lots of fluctuate because they haven't optimized. The system doesn't optimize very well. But nevertheless, it does show good evidence. But the thing that comes out of it that is so interesting is that the, the scaling is much more like organisms that you, you've already mentioned this than it is like cities, namely that it's sublinear rather than superlinear. And when it was sublinear, as in organisms, what did that tell us? That said that um, uh, as they grow, they stop growing, mm -hmm. they stabilize. Um, it's called sigmoidal growth, technically it looks like a Greek sigma, um, they, they uh, stop growing and then they die. I mean, that's the kind of life history of an organism, <laughs> roughly. And that's what the theory try explains. Um, whereas uh, cities, you have this superlinear behavior that leads to open-ended growth. And it's not clear if it, it, about mortality. I mean, cities don't die, roughly speaking. I know people will yell and scream, of course, you know, cities that die. Well, yes, there are ancient cities and there are ghost towns sprinkled around, but the vast majority of cities that have ever existed, um, you know, the serious cities, 
still exist. Mm -hmm. You could drop atom bombs on cities <laughs> and 25 years later, they're fine. You have a small fluctuation of the externalities in the stock market and you lose TWA. You lose Lehman Brothers. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, and we're, gonna, we're, lose, we're effectively losing Sears and so on. It doesn't take much. Cities are fragile. Cities, I'm sorry, are robust. Companies are fragile. And, um, and so the, the, the growth curve of a company mimics much more the growth curve that you and I have. You grow quickly and then you stabilize, uh, whereas cities keep growing. Basically. And speaking and, of the speaking of the fragility of companies, one of the astounding facts in this section of the book for me was that apparently the risk of a company dying does not depend at all on its age or its size. <laughs> yes, that is if the, the what's called the mortality, which is the um, um, relative rate of death, doesn't change with the size. It's it's. It's the same, what is remarkable, what we discovered, which we were surprised at actually, was that if you looked at mortality of companies, it looks like, you know, in other words, if you take a cohort of companies at some particular time, mm -hmm. and you ask how many of these are still around 10 years, 20, 30 years later, it obeys the same law as taking a bunch of radioactive atoms and asking how many of those are left, <laughs> you know, and they decay randomly, you know, and it just is an exponential decay. And that's what companies do, which is remarkable. <laughs> and we don't fully understand it. I mean, what's going on here? It's like, it's again, one of these things that, um, you know, when you think of companies, they seem so individual and so, dependent upon a particular niche and a particular, you know, who, and they make a big deal about, you know, um, the CEO being so brilliant and so forth <laughs> and all the rest. And yet somehow when you average over all of them, it's just like a bunch of atoms decaying, you know, it's not. Uh, it's, now, of course, like everything else, and I haven't emphasized this enough throughout this, there are always outliers and there are mm. always variances so just as I said, you know, when I said there be, you know, animals or cities obey those scaling laws, I, I tried to say at the 80-90% level, the individuality of the organism, the individuality of the city, and in this case of the company, is the rest of it, is that other 20%, 10-20%. Mm -hmm. um, the, the individuality meaning the history, geography, culture, and so on. So it is with companies, and companies have more, much more variance. Mm -hmm. So there's much more room for being individual, so to speak. But um, the work that we've done shows extraordinary regularities, um, really, um, considering you know the system we're dealing with. One of the things I got to thinking about as I was reflecting on your book, I considered the difference between organisms and cities, the differences that we discussed. And at first pass, you sort of say that you know companies are more like organisms. They're finite, they're mortal, and they die. And then I started to think about some modern companies, especially the bigger tech companies, the yeah. Amazons, the Googles, the Apples. And you know, I, I'm here sitting in Seattle, 
and Amazon essentially has taken over entire blocks of okay. downtown Seattle. They have campuses where you work and you live effectively. Yep. You can get your laundry and your haircut at work. And so are some of these companies becoming more city-like in their organization? And could that potentially allow them to unlock the potential for open-ended growth? Well, this is a question that comes up a lot, actually. And when I discuss, I do talk to people in that world. And indeed, in the very world that you just talked about, namely Amazon. Um, and, um, well, let's see, I'm on slightly awkward ground here, but... Uh, um, the the um, I'll say this that um, there are some CEOs of companies, Bezos being one of them, mm -hmm. that um, understands this this phenomenon we've just been talking about and the finiteness of companies. That companies are fragile and have a finite lifetime. And I didn't say, by the way, um, the data tells us that the so to speak the average lifespan of a company in the United States that's publicly traded. That means it's already gone through the gestation period of posting on the New York Stock Exchange, for example. It's only 10 years. Hmm. Um, that's all you can expect of a company. Now, some companies may live 100 or 200 years, of course. There's great variance. And some may go bust after one year. Um, but um, and, and so the question is, um, you know, one of the things I've, speculated about, and it is speculation because we don't have the data on the internal mechanisms of companies. So it comes from both reading case studies and talking to um, major CEOs of major companies and others in their administration is I've speculated on why this happens, why it is the companies die. Because they, uh, first of all, even though they may behave like organisms in that sense, in the sense we just described, that is, they stop growing and then die, the mechanism is different. It's not, you know, blood flowing through <laughs> uh, arteries and wearing out the arteries, although there might be some analog to that. Um, it, it, it's much more, um, I believe, um, to do with the change that inevitably happens to a company as it ages, and that is going from something that's small and can move fast, is dominated by ideas, mm -hmm. um, is dominated by, you know, ideas for its product range and space, um, and um, is very innovative, typically, at the beginning. Um, but then as it grows, inevitably, usually, anyway, the product space narrows because it has to respond to the market. So some things that it thought were very sexy and innovative actually doesn't sell. Well, you can't go on producing it. Whereas things that you thought were somehow mundane, like Bezos and Amazon, something that was a side issue, you know, doing this stuff on the web and so on, turned out to be the thing that's made mm -hmm. him essentially the richest man in the world, which is extraordinary. So, you know, you have to respond to that. Um, but, of course, what that does in the vast majority of cases, it locks you in. Um, and so you get locked in to, you know, a certain way of doing business, a certain product space, certain narrowness. And that gets coupled with the uh, more and more en encroachment 
of bureaucracy and administration mm-hmm. that is inevitable because you're getting a bigger company. You have to have um, you have all these both external laws that you have to pay. You have to pay your taxes. You have all these HR laws, um, all these safety laws. Then the company itself starts imposing its own laws to make sure those laws are obeyed, obeyed, and so on. And the whole thing builds up so that we have this image of the company that it's basically the bureaucracy administration and the innovative, productive part becomes kind of secondary to that. I mean, that's sort of a cartoon version of what happens. And what that means is that it becomes somewhat ossified. And when the externalities change, Mm -hmm. the company cannot adjust. Or if the competition, something new happens, competition comes comes along, uh, you you can't move the battleship fast enough and the company goes under. And that's the typical kind of life history of companies, successful companies that become very large and unable to adapt. They're simply unable to adapt fast enough. And uh, so now cities are quite different even though they're also a socioeconomic organization, because um, they're really not top-down. Of course, they have to have administrations and bureaucracies, clearly. You have to have uh, something to manage uh, much of the infrastructure. But cities are quite the opposite. They're open. They're open-ended. Um, they um, are great cities, allow new things all the times to be time to be developing. New York is maybe the greatest city in the world because when you go there, you feel you can accomplish anything. I mean, that's mm-hmm. sort of the image, you know, to you know, leave the farm and go to New York because I can be free and explore. I can become mm-hmm. a great dancer. I can invent this new thing and so on. Yeah. So anyone can Valley. move there. Sorry? Anyone can move there. Anyone can move there. And that's Silicon Valley took over that within, you know, the modern paradigm that we have. And, um, and, and you know, I often say this, and it's and I, maybe I shouldn't, but you know, when you go to New York, one of the things that you see, and San Francisco is another innovative city, homeless people. Seattle, my God, yep. homeless people, and it's awful and terrible, and crazy people walking on the streets, some old people talking to themselves and so on. And the thing that's amazing about that is that they provide a boundary for the rest of us. We are sort of free to move right up to that edge of being sort of crazy and different and not fitting in quite 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 in the right way and so mm-hmm. on. It's 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 symbolic and metaphorical, but you can't do that in a company. Mm-hmm. You don't have the analog to that in a company. Companies are extraordinarily intolerant of having people that are different, that don't quite fit, that are bucking the system, that aren't doing what they're told and so mm-hmm. on. And uh, even Google, which presented itself as that image, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the MIT graduate living in the basement who never washes and so on, you know, that was kind of the image they projected and they could do anything. That ain't, that, I mean, that was never really true. It might have been sort of true at the beginning with Google, actually. Mm-hmm. But now it's sort of like many other companies. Mm-hmm. Except yeah, I mean, Go ahead. The HR function of a company is very much designed, and it's one of its primary purposes, other than just keeping track of who's hired and how much they're being paid and those things, is really to create a culture, a set of rules that everyone follows. 
absolutely. And and of course, cities have cultures, but they're it's so grey and so broad, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. And so, a great city, you know, people are attracted. Innovative cities are ones that have allowed innovative people to come and create. And um, you know, and I, I and I think that's and it's very hard. And I think that is the role of mayors and administrations are to facilitate that in a way that is constructive. Of course, it can become destructive, uh, but, um, and, and, but many cities have been extraordinary at doing that. Uh, and companies um, have been terrible at uh, doing that, and, they want, and then they, uh, they freak out when things get rough and they realize they haven't innovated, they haven't allowed things to develop and so on. Now, one of the things that's developed um, in recent years, it was always there, but much more so, is that, especially in Silicon Valley, IT companies, is buying up companies, of course, Mm -hmm. to to bring in that innovation. And, And I think that's only been marginally successful. I don't think that's been, it's not organic. It has worked. I mean, What's it? Facebook brought Instagram, for mm-hmm. example. Um, it didn't invent it, um, but and then that's presumably been successful. Um, but um, many of these other little companies that they bought up, and sometimes they buy them up, of course, in a traditional way of suppressing new ideas rather than innovating because they feel threatened. Um, so it's a complicated process. But now I want to go to the very hub of your question, <laughs> which is the Amazons and the Googles and so on that provide something that cities have provided in the past and well, present too, of course. They provide a certain infrastructure. I mean, Google was the first to do this mm-hmm. in providing, you know, uh, childcare and free meals and sort of you can almost sleep there and live there. And they, they were having maybe some problems even with people sort of moving in um, and so on. Um, and... Uh, Amazon has now done it, as you say, in Seattle by building, um, you know, these um, housing for people and so on, which other companies have done, of course. Now, I don't think that's going to do it. I don't think that is, it may have some of the trappings of a city, but I don't think so. I don't think it will have the essence of a city. Mm -hmm. And I say that because in the 19th century, I mean, that's what companies did. You know, I mean, especially industrial companies, uh, coal mining companies, after all. I mean, here, um, there are towns, of course, that are company, I mean, the the company town, the company Mm -hmm. store. So they were, but, you know, they didn't survive in the end. Um, And I think that's going to be true of of these IT companies. Um, That is, they will not survive because of this. They will only survive if they can somehow, which is extraordinarily difficult, um, encourage and engender the uh, what a city can do, which is this much more open, transparent way of allowing sort of rogue people to to move in. I mean, that's how Silicon Valley started, after all. I mean, mm-hmm. these, uh, I mean, the people with that weren't going to go to IBM. Or whatever, who had crazy, you know, what was might have been considered crazy ideas at the time. Mm-hmm. 
So this does sound like, you know, you, I immediately think of Google's moonshot lab. They've essentially taken a pile of, yeah, they, they essentially take a pile of money Absolutely. and say, you people uh, go over there, don't break anything, but feel free to just tinker with whatever you think is interesting. Yes. And I think that's been mixed. I mean, it has been, I, uh, there's no question that that's, that's stimulated by these, this kind of idea um, that um, can you have either, you know, a piece of you that is unfettered. Mm -hmm. uh, better still would be to spawn a company that in fact is completely independent of you hmm. <laughs> somehow, which is, which then kind of means that if they're independent of you. So the question is, how much independence do they need in order to really be self you know, self-sustained in their innovative qualities mm -hmm. um, without feeling beholden. Because there's a big psychological side to this, you know, as being part of it. And I know that from people at Google. I mean, that's highly non-trivial. And so I don't know. I don't think there's a simple solution. Um, and it, I, I, I had been thinking, by the way, that this was not possible. That is, you can't actually have a company operating in the, mar in the free market system that we have um, that it operates like a city or even a piece of it, that it, it, it just is not going to work. I, I have backed off from that. I, that I, may, I may be well be wrong on that. But I don't know. The jury's out. There aren't enough examples. And um, I, I'm not at all sure that companies, um, even if they do things like the Google Moonshot, really um, are able to let go. They're very much like parents and children. And, uh, you know, they always wanted them to be visiting them on the weekend and coming for Sunday dinner or giving them presents and so on. I think it's not so easy. Interesting. So, one of the that's last purely questions. speculative. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know. One of the last questions I want to ask has to do with cities, innovation, and COVID. So, there's been a lot of in the wake of the COVID pandemic. Yes. There's been a lot of immigration and emigration from some cities. Yes. I haven't seen that much data on this, but it seems to be happening at some reasonable level. People are moving out of certain cities that we traditionally think of as innovation hubs and moving into new cities that we don't traditionally think of as innovation hubs. Do you think that that's happening very much? And, and what do you think the nature of, you know, how does a New York become a New York and attract the innovative people? Do you, do you see anything interesting happening with respect to the, the COVID pandemic and its aftermath? Well, of course, we're way too early, uh, needless to say, to, to, to know what the long-term effects of this are going to be. Um, certainly, um, I, the, the sparse data that I have seen is actually not that impressive in terms of the hype that's been made out of it. Namely, yes, I mean, I'm in Santa Fe, and, uh, you know, there's been a big influx of people from California, Texas, even, and so forth, New York. But what does a large flux mean? It's hundreds of people, actually, because we're a small town. Mm -hmm. And the number of people really leaving San Francisco and New York 
is actually not that big. I think we have to wait to see this other big effect that we don't know is, you know, going back to offices mm-hmm. and nine to five or whatever, eight to five or whatever. You know, we don't know quite yet how, you know, will the system just slowly relax back to what it was effectively uh, with some, you know, bells and whistles to do with being on Zoom occasionally, or will it in fact become this kind of hybrid model of going into the office a few days a week or not at all in some instances and doing it all electronically? I'm, um, you know, a lot of things work very well with Zoom. I, of course, hate Zoom because I'm old. (laughs) But, (laughs) I mean, two-dimensional and so formalized and so structured and so on. Now, new, new applications will develop. You know, I mean, it will improve enormously, I'm sure. But in the kind of work that I do, um, you know, um, certain things work fine on Zoom. You know, if you have a collaboration going and something going, you can keep, keep it going and do good things. But to do something truly creative and to start new things, it's very hard. And nothing can replace being in three dimensions in the same room, so to speak, with a blackboard and bullshitting non-linearly, you know, brainstorming and so on. And you need some of that. And companies, yes, the 90-something percent of a company doesn't need that. Uh, But a few percent does. And that's how a company dies, when that few percent goes to almost zero, and then it dies eventually because it's not creating anything, doesn't realize what's going on. So I think um, many companies will realize this, I think. And I think many people will feel more comfortable actually going back to a a working, a traditional situation. But I, I, my intuition is that there will be a change um, and there will be these kind of hybrid things, but it may not have as big an effect as we feel at the moment. Hmm. Um, and, and therefore, um, how much it will affect people leaving the city and therefore um, the evolution of the city, I'm not a I, I'm not sure. I, 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 my intuition is it won't affect the city much in the long run because it's not cities are there for work, yes, mm. but they're for, as I said, for interaction, for bringing people together. The buzz of, I mean, New York is there, yes, because of what we said earlier. There's enormous opportunities there and the feeling that you can do all these various things. But it's also there for the sexy buzz of the city that, you know, all the interesting things that are going on. And it builds, it all builds on each other. And, um, you know, it's, I think that's hard to replicate in, a, in many places. So I, and I think there's a, there, people have a need for that, especially young people. Well, Jeffrey, I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you for joining me here. Are there any final thoughts that you want to leave people with in terms of your book? And is there any place that people can go to to follow your work? Well, uh, I do write things. I write essays occasionally. I struggle with writing, so I don't write much. Um, But um, 
I would say, you know, one of the reasons, I wrote that book for several reasons. Um, uh, one was because I, am, became, I was becoming increasingly concerned, and this is, by the way, prior to Mr. Trump, uh, the lack of respect and understanding and the role of science in society and how crucial that is. And um, that um, we are losing that input in a dramatic way. And this was before Trump. And Trump just put a huge exclamation mark after that because he introduced something that I thought could never happen. That was that actually, you know, facts and science and truth, in a certain sense, don't matter. You can sort of bend them whatever way kind of suits you, kind of, that was the image anyway, that's been projected. And we've had some terrible results from it, like, you know, several hundred thousand people dying um, unnecessarily. And so um, it has huge implications. So I wrote the book because I wanted to write a book of science and about science and a way of thinking. And this was important, a way of thinking that does that we don't integrate into society. It's not part of our political process. There are, I don't know how many members of Congress there are, but there's, I think there's only one, maybe two, that have any inkling of, of what science is about. Yet, the whole of society runs because of science and technology. And all the things they're legislating on, all the decisions they're making, actually, in many, many cases, have their initiation in science and technology, and they don't understand it. And I find that distressing. And I find that um, a problem of some urgency, because all kinds of bad decisions get made. And of course, part of that is drip was originally driven by the fact that people don't understand that um, uh, we're uh, about the whole question of climate change, but much more importantly, the whole question of sustainability. And uh, fundamentally, I began to realize, as I wrote about this in the book, that most people, even in Congress, don't understand what an exponential is, even though they use that word colloquially all the time. That the extraordinary implications of exponential are just simply not uh, appreciated. So I wrote it for that. And I wrote it um, also because um, um, I wanted people to see something which I hope comes across a little bit in the book, the extraordinary interconnectedness of everything mm -hmm. and the extraordinary spiritual beauty that you can get from understanding that. And that's what I get from it, um, um, is that I stand in awe of, of that in terms of the world around us. And uh, that underneath the you know extraordinary diversity and messiness the, you know, that is around us underlies an extraordinary regularity and simplicity. And one should, you know, I want people to appreciate that because it's beautiful. <laughs> and it wants me to go on living. I'm 80 years old, but I want to live because I enjoy that. Well, Jeffrey, thank you for your time. I think that's the perfect place to end. And I look forward to talking to you again at some point. Yes, Nick, thank you so much for having me and I enjoyed it. Thank you. Your questions were terrific, by the way. <laughs> thank you. No, they were really good because you'd obviously given great thought to, you know, whatever the 
bits and pieces I wrote. So thank you very much. Enjoy very much. Thank you.